This is week number 17 in our study of the book of Daniel. And last week we finished chapter 4. And you remember in chapter 4 we discussed the second dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel interpreted. And, and this dream, very unlike the first one, the first one um, basically sweeping through all of history from the time of Babylon all the way to the end of the age, talking about the five or possibly six kingdoms that ultimately exist on the earth until ultimately Christ comes and ushers in the kingdom of God. But this one in chapter 4, very different, very specific, very personal to Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, a, a judgment against Nebuchadnezzar for his arrogance and for his pride. You'll remember he was walking one day and admiring himself and all that he had accomplished. And in that admiration, God said, your sovereignty has been removed from you, meaning the kingdom has been taken from you. And so Nebuchadnezzar went from being the most powerful man on the planet to being one of the most humble men on the planet. And, and through that humiliation, uh, God allowed him to recognize that God is the ruler of the realm of mankind and appoints over it whom he pleases. And so Nebuchadnezzar learned that truth. And so chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar proclaiming that truth really to every person on the planet. Uh, He says at the beginning, peace be to you. And then he recites what had happened in his life so that they might understand. They might see the same thing that he had seen, which was the miracles of the workings of God. And so that was chapter 4. God using Nebuchadnezzar again, a man who... Um, had many gods who didn't believe in the one true God, but yet made a proclamation to the whole world that he was uh, God most high, God above anybody else. So twice in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, we've seen God use him and his um, dealings and the way he was running his country, his um, empire to spread throughout all the empire and even beyond Um, the greatness of the one true God. And so God can, at any time he wants to, reveal himself to the world. And through Nebuchadnezzar, we've seen he's done it twice. Today is very different as we open up chapter 5. It's many years after Nebuchadnezzar. We'll talk about that. What's the date of this passage? When exactly did it happen? And who are the people who are involved in it? Because Nebuchadnezzar is no longer on the scene. Um, probably has died many years ago. And so now we come to a different ruler in Babylon. Um, So we'll just read through the first 12 verses and then begin to discuss how this plays back into chapter 4. And what we'll recognize, not this week, but probably the next, is that the example of Nebuchadnezzar is recited. All of what happened in chapter 4 is recited here in chapter 5, speaking to Belshazzar, that you should have learned your lesson from what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, that you knew these things, but you didn't pay any attention to them. And that's exactly what Daniel will say to him um, as we get into the interpretation of what happens here in the first 12 verses. So beginning in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, there the scripture reads, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand Of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw that the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, 
and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Anyone who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him the chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. So very different from uh, the dreams that we've had and uh, the visions and all of that. This is an actual literal thing that happens during King Belshazzar's rule. Now, this is, uh, when we get to the very end of this chapter, is when Cyrus, uh, the Persian, comes in and takes the kingdom. So we know the date of this. That happened in 539 B.C., when Cyrus came in and defeated, didn't really defeat, he just came in and they kind of gave him the keys to the kingdom uh, in Babylon. So we know that this is at the very end of the rule of the Babylonian Empire. And, and after them, the Medo-Persians will take over and rule the world for a short period of time. And then will come the Greeks and then the Romans and then we get into um, after Christ is here. So... 539 is the date of this. Now, um, you remember that Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years, taking over after his dad, Nabopolassar, uh, died in 605 B.C. So I think that takes you down to like, uh, what's that, 569 B.C. is when Nebuchadnezzar's reign is over. So we go from 569 and now we're down 560, that's not right, 562, 562, 43 and 62 is 105, right? Okay, so 562, so we go from 562 and now we're down in 539. So uh, quite a few years, 23 years in there, and there have been, um, I believe, three uh, kings since, this is the third king since, um, Nebuchadnezzar. So you, you'll notice several things here. First of all, um, Belshazzar is called the king all throughout this passage. It's the way he's addressed by everybody in the passage. Even Daniel later, when he gets down to give his interpretation, down in verse 18, he says, O king, the most high God granted sovereignty. So he, even Daniel calls this Belshazzar the king. So clearly he must be the king. Um, But then you also notice uh, several times in here, uh, in verse 2, it says the silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, meaning Belshazzar's father, had taken. So it seems like the next generation. And then you notice all through this passage, um, again, that same thing is said down in verse 11. When the queen comes in and speaks, she says, um, and in the days of your father, illumination was given to uh, Daniel, and then again, and King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king. So emphasizing this over and over again. And then you also see down in verse 22, much later, that Daniel will say um, that he's the son of Nebuchadnezzar, Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, speaking, uh, referring back to the previous verse of Nebuchadnezzar. So we've got 
this Belshazzar who is the king and he's the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Now we have two problems there. First of all, there never was a Babylonian king named Belshazzar. You can read the Babylonian record and there is no king by that name. And then second of all, um, he's not the literal son of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so we got two issues here. They call him the son of Nebuchadnezzar, call Nebuchadnezzar his father, and then they also call him the king repeatedly over and over and over again when there never was a Babylonian king named Belshazzar. The record's clear on that. So we have to address these two issues, right? We have to look into history and figure out exactly who is this guy and when is the timing and, and what's going on. Why does everybody call him the king? Okay, and so if you go and you read Babylonian history, which I'm sure you all did this week, right? <laughs> Went and read that who is this Belshazzar guy and why do they call him the king? Let, let's take the, the second issue first and then we'll talk about the kingship of Belshazzar. So the second issue is that he was called the son of Nebuchadnezzar and he's also called, um, Nebuchadnezzar is called his father repeatedly throughout this passage. So I make a statement that Belshazzar is not the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And you can kind of get that. There, there were four kings, really five if you count Nebuchadnezzar's father, over the Babylonian kingdom. Okay, And when you get to the end of the kingdom, which is well documented, Belshazzar um, is not the king. Okay, and if, if Nebuchadnezzar was his father, then he'd have been king much earlier. When Nebuchadnezzar got, left the scene, it would have been this same guy, Belshazzar. So he's not the direct son of Nebuchadnezzar. So, a couple questions. Why do they call him the son of Nebuchadnezzar? And why is Nebuchadnezzar called his father? And your answer is? Could mean ancestor. So that would make sense. Right. So he's maybe in the line of Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar is not his literal father. Also, when you think about the Old Testament and you think about father figures, who do you think about? You think about Abraham, and you should then also think about Isaac and Jacob and maybe even David. Right, that those would be the four greatest patriarchs that we would think about, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are called what? The fathers of whom? All of Israel, being Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, being renamed Israel, right? And so they're the fathers, they're the patriarchs, they're the ancestors, and that's the way this term is being used here. It's even done that way in the New Testament, right? You turn over to Romans chapter 4, and at the beginning of Romans chapter 4, it speaks of, Paul writes of Abraham. Chapter 4 is a very cool chapter in in Romans, one of my favorite actually, because it's the one that people don't usually study. But it says, what then shall we say that Abraham our, and there you see it, the forefather according to Um, the flesh has found and all through here Abraham is spoken of as the father of the Jews but then you get down to a very neat um, passage in Romans chapter 4 and verse I think it's 16 where it says for this reason is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants not only of those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So even Abraham, not just being a a literal father to the Jews, but also a father by faith to everybody who believes in Jesus Christ. And there's actually, if you get into it and you study it, there's actually four lines that come from Abraham. You have uh, Ishmael. You have the Jews who believe and then you have the Jews who don't believe, and then you have the Gentiles who truly believe, all four claiming Abraham to be their father. And so there's actually four lines, and that's what Romans 4 is all about. It traces those four lines and, and distinguishes 
between those who are true sons of Abraham and those who just claim to be sons of Abraham. And that's what the, chapter 4 is all about, showing that um, true Jewishness or true sons of Abraham or however you want to think about that. You know, this goes back to chapter 2 where it says not all those who are, who are Jews are Jews. And you're like, what does that mean? And well, he, he explains it in chapter 4 that it's all of those who have a faith like Abraham who are really the sons of Abraham. And so in that same sense, back in Daniel chapter 5, <clears throat> they're speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. The queen does it. Daniel does it. Um, speaks to Nebuchadnezzar about, to Belshazzar about Nebuchadnezzar being his father in the sense that he came before him, not his literal father, even though they call him the son of Abraham, of of. Nebuchadnezzar, you'd do the same thing. You'd say you're a son of Abraham by faith, right? So it's in that sense that they call him the son. He's not the literal son, even though if you just read it on the surface, you would think that, but he's not. Okay, so that's the easy. That one, that one's simple. Okay, then why do they call him the king when he's truly not the king? There never was a Babylonian king named Belshazzar. So, but he's called king. Everybody treats him as the king. <clears throat> Even the queen does. Would he be one of the rulers of one of the provinces? Like that province? He's, he's the ruler of the whole thing, of the whole empire. So, how do you get there? Go ahead. Uh, in history, there's been co-regencies where uh, the father and son would rule simultaneously. Right. Right. Uh, there are, and I'm unfamiliar with Roman history, but I'm sure there are several Caesars who were co-regent, and I think this is a similar case. It's very similar, except for Belshazzar has a dad, okay, Nabonidus, and and he was um, not such a good king, in this sense, <coughs> he was not a very good politician. Very poor politician. And instead of worshiping, you remember all of um, uh, everything that Nebuchadnezzar did was centered around the god Bel, or who in, in history would be called Marduk. Remember that? We, Marduk is equivalent to Bel. That's why Daniel's name was changed to Belshazzar. Um, you know, so it's all about that. And this, this guy's name is almost like Daniel's, right? Just drop a couple of letters and you would have Belshazzar, who's the king. So instead of worshiping uh, Marduk and really um, making him prominent or making um, his priests to be prominent who were in Babylon, instead of doing that, he worshiped the moon god. Okay, and that's where his favoritism went. He even rebuilt um, the moon god's temple in Hara, in that city. And so um, opposed to him were all the priests of Marduk because he didn't favor them as all the other kings had done. So he was a bad politician. He would rather go and dig in the dirt, literally, and excavate ancient Babylonian ruins. You know, I mean, we know, we, we've been thinking of Babylon from 605 to um, 539, and that's the kingdom that we're looking at. But the kingdom in Babylon goes all the way back to almost 2000 BC. And so what, his dad, what Belshazzar's dad would rather do is go and excavate those ancient ruins and and, and we owe a lot to him archaeology-wise that he uncovered some things that we still are interested in today. But he would rather go do that and, and go do that and abdicate his throne and give it to his son Belshazzar. So you're exactly right. Not, he wasn't an active king. He, he left very early in his kingship because everybody was opposed to him. The people didn't like him because he's a bad politician. The priests don't like him. Even the, the people that he would um, go see in the excavations didn't like him. He was a very unpopular guy. And you'll notice at the end of um, the Babylonian Empire, he's not killed. His son is killed. 
because nobody recognized him really as king, although he is king, because then you've got this queen who is not the wife of Belshazzar. Okay, so we'll talk about that when we get down to the queen in verse 10. But so that's the reason that everybody calls Belshazzar um, or Belshazzar the king is because he functionally, he is the king. He is doing all the kingly roles. He's ruling the country. Um, He's doing all the things that a king would do while his dad's off digging in the dirt. And everybody recognized that and everybody understood that. And so he was treated as the king. You notice there are several times in here where he says, I'll make you the third ruler of the kingdom, not the second in command, right? A couple of reasons for that, and we'll talk about them when we get down there. It could be one of two things. One could clearly be that you have his dad and then him, and then he would make the next man second in command to him, which would make him third commander in the kingdom. That's one theory. There's another one. It's N-A-B-O-N-I-D-U-S. Now, how do you want to say that? It's okay. <laughs> you, he, yeah, you have, to, you have to assume that he's in the line, that he's, he, he's not the son, okay? As far as we know, there is no son of Nebuchadnezzar. So, you know, I don't know exactly how royalty works because it always confuses me that if you have a daughter then she becomes the queen. But if she marries a man, he doesn't become the king. He becomes a prince. And, you know, how that lineage goes down. Then if you have a son, then he becomes the king. So it's just confusing to me. But nevertheless, this guy is not Nebuchadnezzar's son. He's not his grandson. He's one of the relatives, okay? Don't know exactly how, how he's related. Go ahead. So Belshazzar is in the Babylonian history. It's not as though... Never mentioned, or he's never. Did you reference him? He's never referenced as a king. As a king, but he is. He does exist. With oh yeah, the Cyrus. Cyrus kills him instead of his dad. Right. Because his dad's just not significant. And there's the Syrian, the Syrian historians who even historians who even confirm that part. Yes. Yeah, that he kills his son instead of the king himself. Yeah. This is this is not. You know, this is six. I mean, this is five thirty nine B C. So it's not like we don't have documentation from this time. We do. We have the, we have the Syrian documentation. We have the Babylonian documentation. I mean, it's, it's, this is not all lost. What, it, what has been lost is, are most of the archives of Nebuchadnezzar himself. That's what we don't have. We have just a little bit of that. Now, it's probably in a cave somewhere, and one day somebody will discover it as we continue to discover things, right? that got put in caves and so it may still be there or may actually be destroyed but we don't have much of what Nebuchadnezzar actually documented but we have plenty of Babylonian documentation okay as a matter of fact um, there are <clears throat> I was reading about this in Germany there's a, a great museum that has many of the artifacts that were taken from the Babylonian kingdom to Germany and they're on display it's public display and when when Germany got divided after the end of World War II, it actually divided, this is ridiculous, divided the museum into two museums, one on the east, one on the west. And so they moved the one on the west, but then they reopened the one on the east once the wall came down. So it's just crazy stuff. So anyway, you can go out and read all that as well as I can. But you have to put some of these pieces together to understand who Belshazzar is and why are they calling him the king when he's not really the king. He's just acting as the king. Go ahead, Bob. What's the translation that you like for the 30th verse, which does call him the king? Yeah. But my, my NIV says that Babylonians really should be translated Chaldeans, and they're not the same geographically. Right. No, they're not. Well, they're, depends on how you think about it. Have lots of kings. Right. And that's clearly true about the Babylonian. I mean, I mean, even in Jerusalem, they appointed their own king. And we saw that clearly. The Jehoiakim was appointed as king by Nebuchadnezzar. And then ultimately Nebuchadnezzar did away with him because he, he revolted. So, um, yeah, and the Chaldeans, I mean, that, 
And that's a very specific geog- geographical place. But that name applies to a very broad area that people would take the name, not because they were from there, but because they were educated and trained in the Chaldean doctrines. And so at that point, you would call yourself a Chaldean. So it's not because you were from there. It's because you, remember, that's the the training they gave to Daniel and all his compatriots was the training of the Chaldeans. That's where the learning center was. Okay. Now, all right, so we've answered the two mystery questions about Belshazzar. So we get into the passage. Belshazzar calls for this great feast, right, of a thousand of his nobles. Now, you have to assume this is not like Nebuchadnezzar's from all across the region of of Babylon's empire, but just from Babylon, the province itself. Now, I I speculate that there are more than just a thousand people there. Why would I do that? Who else is there that is specifically mentioned? the concubines of, of Belshazzar and his multiple wives, both being plural. So I've got to believe if he could have his wife there or wives there, then probably could some of the nobles. So this is not just a thousand people. This is a, this is a big crowd of people. Okay, so he calls for this great feast and um, as would be his uh, apparent norm, he's drinking wine in front of all these people. So they're all getting a little uh, sauced at this point. So when Belshazzar tasted the wine in verse 2, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. All right, now, this has been... they, They took the first articles in 605. Okay, and this is six, and this is five thirty nine. So it's been like sixty six years since these things have been used. Why is it that Belshazzar would want to pull these vessels and use them in this feast? What do you think? I mean, we're speculating here, right? Why? That he can, right? I mean, basically, he's he's being arrogant. So he can do whatever he wants to. And, and that while there may have been some respect during Daniel's day for these instruments because of Daniel's prominence, you know, Daniel is not so much forefront. When we get to this point, it's been 25 years since Nebuchadnezzar left the scene. And so Daniel's still prominent, but he's not as prominent as he was during Nebuchadnezzar because you notice that Belshazzar doesn't even know him. Who he is. Go ahead. Sure. Well, there's six of them there, I think. Right. That's right. And, and, and so there, this is it very much defiling, disrespectful, all of that. Go ahead. How do you feel that there's a custodial record yeah. of, of Jewish implements? So when they do go back. Yeah, for our sake, yes. Yeah, I mean, you go back to verse 2 of chapter 1 in Daniel. And you'll see where um, the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand talking about Nebuchadnezzar's hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now it says how many? Some. Now I personally believe that all of the instruments of the house of God were preserved. Why would I say such a thing? Well, the temple is going to be rebuilt. Not only that, the sacrifices are going to be restarted according to the prophecies, right? The Jews will be sacrificing when they recognize that Christ is their Messiah. That will be going on during the three and a half years of peace, however long it takes to build the temple and then sacrifices. But there's, there's more than that. 
If you go back to Second Chronicles, remember we did this before we ever started Daniel. So go back to Second Chronicles, the, um, toward the end, um, in verse thirty, in chapter thirty-six, Second Chronicles. Thirty-six, I think. Right at the very end, yeah, the last chapter. So you look at Second Chronicles thirty-six, verse seven, and this is this is the historical record of the same thing that Daniel refers to. Remember, we went back, and this is where you have more detail. So in thirty-six, verse seven, it says Nebuchadnezzar also brought some of the articles of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in the temple at Babylon. Okay, so there's the same thing that Daniel said, but then you move down to verse 18. And this is, remember the first conquest was in 605, um, the final conquest, because they kept having bad kings, so they kept going and, and, and whipping up on them and killing their people and taking some more. And so finally that came in what, 586 is when we get to verse 18, and it says, all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the walls of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. So, But they destroyed all the articles except for the articles that come out of the house of God. They take them all in 586. So you just take some of them, they pilfer them in 605, just take some of the trinkets and the cups and you know that kind of stuff. But when they get ready to burn the temple, they say this stuff is too valuable to burn, we'll take it all back with us. And as you said, that's the way that God preserved his all the instruments from the temple even though the temple itself was totally decimated and destroyed. This is the temple that Solomon built. This is the temple that's totally destroyed at this time. When Zerubbabel comes back in 150 years, then he will rebuild the temple, and that's what's known as Second Temple Judaism. You'll hear that term today, Second Temple Judaism. It's talking about the temple that was rebuilt after Zerubbabel returned and the one that Herod greatly expanded. That's Second Temple Judaism, and we won't get into all that today, right? Because there's some very bizarre thinking going on there. But so you see that all the instruments were actually saved from the temple. This is what Belshazzar, 65 years later, pulls off the shelf and very boisterously, very defiling, very arrogantly um, um, uses in his feast. And this is what they're drinking from when, we, when we're looking in Daniel chapter 5. Okay, so they've pulled all these, these, uh, these cups and vessels out. And you notice, as you said in verse 4, they drank the wine and praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Okay? So at this point this hand appears and begins to write on the wall. Now, why at this point in time? What, what do you think? What's going on here? Here we go. we got this, this um, pseudo-king who's called together all his nobles and, and his harem is there and his mistresses are there and his wives are there and they're all having a good party time and they're all drinking this wine and praising all these false gods and then this hand begins to write on the wall. Why? Because his worship instruments have been defiled. Okay, God's worship have just now been defiled. That's part of it. What else? They're not worshiping the true God. They're not worshiping the right guy, the right God, right? Okay, so that's two things. Why does the hand, I mean, what, what does it sound like to you that this hand all of a sudden peers out of nowhere and begins to write on the wall? Okay, it's similar to that. I mean, God wrote on the law with his finger. This is the hand of whom? Well, look at what it says. This is a hand of a man. So it looks like this, right? 
or maybe some of you have bigger hands, maybe some of you have smaller hands. But it looks something like that, and you can only see the back side of it because it's writing on the wall, right? Okay. So what is that? I mean, what, why now? Why? I mean, you're right, but what does it look like to you? He did. I mean, he had all his nobles from his, you know, all the people who are popular. Go ahead. The hand is like a symbol of authority, too. Yeah, it is. Right. It's a judgment. This is like God saying, I've had enough. This is enough. You've gone too far, and I'm going to stop it right now. This, that's what I believe is going on. This is God, I mean... You know, it's not like God didn't know that Cyrus was just outside the camp, right? Because it's this very night that Cyrus comes in and kills Belshazzar. Go ahead, David. Yes, those things are absolutely in order, but it's the application of what Nebuchadnezzar just learned in chapter 4. Mm-hmm, it so is. God choosing the times and the epics and him raising up and setting down. Right, and, and, and it's not coincidental that this party happened on the last day of the kingdom of Babylon, not coincidental at all. This is God orchestrating things to change the rule from that of the, of the Babylonians to that of the Medo-Persians. Perfect timing, exactly what God had planned, and, so he, and men doing what they want to do and God using that to accomplish his will. This Belshazzar did not have to throw this party. He didn't have to call out for the instruments and drink from them. That God didn't doesn't say anywhere that God put that in his mind. This is Belshazzar doing what he wants to do and God using it. God using the will of of, of Belshazzar to accomplish what he wanted to have done. Go ahead. Yeah. That's right. In other words, on his, he did his own thing. Perfect timing. Not, you know, all these guys are together. It's a great time to kill the man. And they're all drunk. <laughs> so if you want to take over the kingdom, you just walk in and say, I'm taking the kingdom and I'll kill your king. And it's done. I mean, there was no war when Babylon fell. None. That was going to be my question. Is where's the Babylonian military in all this? Because, I mean, based on scripture, it was well, just a turkey shoot. Well, it wasn't even that. They didn't even have that. Um, Most of the nobles probably were the leader of the military. So there's no leadership. There's no nothing. When when Cyrus comes into Babylon, he does kill Belshazzar. But there's no massive revolt or pushback or war or skirmish or anything. They just hand the kingdom over to Cyrus. Partly because Belshazzar is now dead, partly because they hated their king. I mean, nobody liked their, their current king, so we might as well go with this guy, because here he is. And, you know, it's not like they didn't know the Persians were gaining strength. If, if you go back and you read Persian history, there had already been, between the Medes and the Persians, there had already been some pretty, pretty heavy battle, and this is the guy who beat everybody. And now here he is in front of you. So they already knew about Cyrus. It's not like his reputation didn't precede him. And so here he is. So they just say, yeah, we'll take this guy as our king. Come on. This, this feast, this wasn't just a one-day feast. You don't, you don't know, but yeah, I wouldn't think it was just a, you know afternoon. Or, yeah. Getting all these vessels. I mean, you're talking about thousands of vessels probably in storage someplace. And, and, and not necessarily close by. I mean, they had to go to the temple to get them. So they weren't just like, you know, go next door and get them. Because this, this apparently is happening at the palace in Babylon. So, yeah, so you get the picture of what's going on here. And this is like God saying, enough. I've had enough. This is your time. And I'm going to send you a message that brings Daniel back into prominence so that when Cyrus comes in, Daniel's the third ruler of the nation. And the, the first one is totally disrespected. The second one is killed. That leaves Daniel. Go ahead. Well, a lot of these wars would have come from distances in that part of the world. Um, and even into Europe, big feasts were a week to a month to two months. Yeah, well, you look at the Jewish feasts, right. which were at least a week. 
Right. Or are they two different people? Well, that's a question. It is, and we'll talk about it when we get to chapter six. By the way, if you want to, if you want to go get a book and read, one of the best books is by a guy named Robert Dick Wilson, and it studies in Daniel. And Robert Dick Wilson was a scholar around the turn of the century, very, very, very logical thinker. He would hear, his, his mantra was this. Someone makes a broad accusation against the scriptures, I'm going to totally ignore that. Someone makes a specific and presents evidence, that is what I'm going to address. And this is the skeptics saying Daniel was not written in 605. Um, there was no Darius that ever you know, can be named in history. Um, the timing doesn't make sense of when Daniel wrote this. All these arguments... Well, Robert Dick Wilson sat down, expert in Chaldean history, expert in the Chaldean language. Matter of fact, this was anytime anybody challenged anything, he would go learn the language that the documents were written in and then study all the documents so that he could get all the evidence, whereas all the other guys just had a little bit of the evidence and didn't know the language, didn't know the history. He wouldn't read just the documents that pertain to the specific issue. He'd read all the historical documents. So when he brought an argument, he brought weight with it. There's a book by Robert Dick Wilson called Studies in, um, in Daniel. You have to be careful because there's two of There's actually, he intended for there to be three. He did not get the third one written before his death, but there are two. Both are great books. You ought to get them and read them. But and weighty, um, logical arguments of why all these skeptics are just, hey, they're wrong. So anyway, that could be some pleasure reading this coming week, right? You've got two weeks before we meet again, <laughs> so you can read the same things that I'm reading, okay? They're good, good books. So, And I, I would... Um, the knowledge about these books to my good friend John David because he has, you know, he can actually read the languages that we're talking about. So I can't go there, but I can read what Robert Dick Wilson wrote about him. So, uh, yeah, it's a little scary, isn't it? Okay, so here we are. We recognize what's going on. We see where all these instruments were taken from the temple. These guys are, are defiling them. They're arrogantly proclaiming something about their idols as opposed about the true God. The true God has had enough. And so we get down to where he begins to write on the wall in verse 5 where it says, Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. Now, so does that mean they're just fingers? Or is there actually a hand? I mean, it says fingers, right? It says it's the fingers. He saw the back of the hand. So, I, you know, maybe it's a whole hand. But, you know, it just kind of comes out of nowhere. You know? Nonetheless, it's disembodied. Right. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't say there's a body that's attached to it, right? It's just a hand. It comes down and begins to write on the wall. How do they know it's a man's hand? Well, I, you know, maybe it was all bruised and calloused and yeah 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 it is now whose hand is this by the way I mean we, we you, you told me it was a man's hand yeah how do you know that whose hand is this you notice what Daniel says about this hand right down in verse 24 when Daniel says then the hand was sent from him and the inscription was written. And then if you look just in the verse before that, right at the end, but the God in whose hands are your life breath, and then it says, then the hand was sent from him. So this is a hand sent from God. Don't know if it's God's hand. Don't know if it's Jesus' hand. Apparently it looks like a man's hand. Um, but this hand is, this is uh, directly from the Most High. And, you know, I think they recognize that. Because just think about it. Even if, even if you're a little taken with wine, 
if a hand appears out of thin air and begins to write on the wall, you know what he's writing has to be a little important, right? It's got to be significant. And he wanted them to see it because it was opposite the lampstand. Yeah. And, you know, you wonder, is that the lampstand they took out of the temple? And is that what, or is it just a regular ordinary lampstand? Don't know. Don't know. But it's got candles on it so you can see what's written on the wall, right? So, yeah, you're right. In a prominent, lighted, lighted place so that everybody could see it. Now, I find it interesting that as we go through this, these guys can't even read what's written, right? They can't even read it, but Daniel can. So we'll get, that. We'll get there eventually. So this hand is a hand sent directly from God, and um, then the king's reaction is a little over the top, is it not? What happens to the king when he sees this hand writing on the wall. What's it say? Well, before he gave orders. Yeah, all the, all the blood drains from his face, right? He becomes pale. His hips get out of joint. Uh, yeah, he does have a panic attack, basically. I mean, he, he is just beside himself. <laughs> I don't know. You know yeah, I mean, he, he's out of control. I mean, it's clear. Now, the word that's actually used here says what? He was, what's it say? Alarmed. This is the word we've seen before, right? This, that word means what? This is the same thing that happened to Daniel when Daniel all of a sudden was given the interpretation of the second dream. You remember, he was alarmed. And Nebuchadnezzar said, don't be alarmed. Alarmed means what? Fearful would be one. Terrified would be better. Horrified would be even better. I mean, this this is beyond um, just your normal, I'm a little anxious about this, right? I mean, if my hips go out of joint and my knees begin to knock together, yeah, you find that a little amusing, don't you? Yeah. God does have a sense of humor. So, he's not only affected in his mind but like Daniel because Nebuchadnezzar could see it on him he's affected physically very affected physically so the king knows this is important but he has no clue what it means he can't even read it and neither can anybody who's there with him but there's writing on the wall by a hand that has no body so it's got to be significant. Okay, so we go on, and, and as his dad did, then the king, in verse 7, called aloud, and he brings all the conjurers and the Chaldeans and the diviners. The king spoke, and here, here's the, the promise. Anybody who can give me the interpretation will be clothed with purple, have a necklace of gold around his neck, and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. We now know what that means, right? third ruler in the kingdom because you got his dad, you got Belshazzar maybe the queen in there somewhere and then you have the, whoever he's going to appoint right underneath himself so whoever he appoints is going to be subservient only to Belshazzar because his dad is out in the desert somewhere digging in the dirt okay so he th- this is the promise of what he gives to him now the thought here is kind of what you said. Um, it's possible. You know, we, we see his dad out in the desert, but he is, the, the people totally don't own him as their king. I mean, everybody doesn't, nobody likes him. Everybody dislikes him, as a matter of fact. So it's possible that the third ruler could be the queen and then Belshazzar and then whoever he appoints. Because this queen is prominent here. This queen could be the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar is a possibility um, because it hasn't been that long. And Nebuchadnezzar, you know, it's only been 23 years or something like that since Nebuchadnezzar was dethroned. This queen could be Belshazzar's mother, could be married to the guy who's actually king. That'd be very possible. And so that's why he is the next in line because Nebuchadnezzar daughter 
marries a man who has a son, that would be the next coming king, I think, if I understand the way that royalty works. Of course, you know, usually what would happen is they would kill each other, and so nobody was left, and the last guy standing would become king. That's the way the Caesars did it, right? The last one standing becomes king, and then somebody obscure kills him, and they become king. So it's just the way it works. And so... Um, that's, there, there's where we're at. We've got the, the writing on the wall. And then, verse 8, Then the king's wise men came in, but they could not even read it. So how are they going to tell you what it means? They couldn't read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Sounds a little familiar, right? Same thing that happened to Nebuchadnezzar multiple times. And so we have to go to Daniel to be rescued. Now, interesting that Belshazzar doesn't know about Daniel has no idea about Daniel because in verse 9 then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed so here you have these nobles who are just dumbfounded standing with their mouths open looking at I can't even read that how can I tell what it says and the king getting even more panicked this they're pitiful I mean, they're pitiful. They they have no clue what to do. So apparently the queen can hear the commotion of all that's going on. And so she comes in, in verse 10. Then the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm, terrify you, or your face be pale. Meaning, get a grip. Right? Don't, don't panic here. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. Sounds like who? And who said the same thing? Nebuchadnezzar. This is the way that Nebuchadnezzar thought about Daniel. So this is the way that maybe his daughter thinks about Daniel. This is the way all the people thought about Daniel. They're still polytheistic. They still, I mean, you see it, right? They named six gods who they worship instead of the one true God. So there's nothing changed in Babylon, even if you believe Nebuchadnezzar became a true believer. Nobody else around him did. They all still had the same exact perspective that Nebuchadnezzar had. Okay, so there's a man who has the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of your father, illumination, insight, wisdom, and the wisdom of the gods were found in him, and King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the king appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. So why isn't he still king, still over them? I mean, if, if Nebuchadnezzar appointed him, Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, the greatest king, Nabonus um, king for 26 years, I think, Neb- 23 years, Nebuchadnezzar like 43 years, and then there's only like five or six years where you had two other kings. So Belshazzar has been ruling for 25 years, and Nebuchadnezzar, so you really have only two kings, really, in prominence in the Babylonian kingdom. You have Nebuchadnezzar, and then you have Belshazzar. And that's really all you've got. So, um, here, here we are, and um, she has the same perspective of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And what does she believe? She's very firm in this. What does she believe? Daniel's God is God. That Daniel can interpret this. Look at what she says in verse 12. This was because extraordinary spirit, knowledge, insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and what? He will declare the interpretation. She has no doubt. Why not? Because she saw it firsthand, twice. Maybe only once, maybe twice. She's probably this guy's dad. I mean, mom. She's probably Belshazzar's mom. Probably the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Although you can't prove that. That's speculation. But because of her knowledge of what happened. Now, I want you to realize something. Belshazzar also knows about this. 
Because when Daniel comes and rebukes him, he says, you knew full well about this. So Belshazzar is old enough to know what happened to his dad when he went mad, the proclamation, and that Daniel was the one who was able to interpret it. He knows about that because Daniel rebukes him and says, you knew full well about this. Why, why, why are you acting like you're acting when you're, you saw your dad humiliated and now you're acting just like him? So it's, it's, this has not escaped anybody's attention. It's still on everybody's mind. They still understand it. They remember it. They know about it. It's only been 25 years. It's not like it's ancient history. And so a lot of these nobles and all would have known about this also. Go ahead. Yeah, you wonder. You wonder. Maybe he was a kid, and Daniel's now an old man. You know, sorry. Daniel is no longer young. He's probably 70s, close to 80. I mean, you think about it. The Babylonian kingdom lasted for between 65 and 70 years. Daniel was probably a young teenager when they first took him in 605. So you add those two together, and you get him. He's close to 80. So he's an old man. So does he know about him? Probably. Does he have any respect or you know, place any trust in him? No. But the queen clearly does. She says, don't get so upset about all this. You've got a guy who can tell you exactly what this means. Just call him. And so he does. And that will be next week. So, what? Yeah. yeah. Next week we're going to have the, I like the term better than all the ones you've heard, Single Service Sunday. So it's triple S, right? Single Service Sunday is next week. It'll be a good time. It'll be uh, very interesting how we logistically do, right? So if you don't have a chair, just stand up. It's that simple. And, you know, and, and there, are, there are 15 wonderful people who volunteered to keep the nursery. So we probably need more than that. But we have 15 who have at this point volunteered. So if you have a you know, if you'd rather keep the kids and not have a seat to sit in, <laughs> then you can go to the nursery. Any questions, comments you've got? This is very familiar, is it not? It sounds just like his dad. I mean, it's just like his dad, except for we've got a literal writing on the wall, which is very different. Go ahead, David. Was, um, he's, he's referred to by historians, secular, as impious. Mm-hmm. And whether he had any sense that he was taking God on when he brought the instruments, uh, he was about to be judged. He really didn't want to know what was on the wall. Right, right. Because it's the end, his end. It is. Similar to Nebuchadnezzar. And I guess I think of judgment, and I think of all of those and us who want to deny a future judgment. How will we face it when it really hits us? Yeah, I mean, because it will, it will face it. We will face it. You know, the interesting thing I find in all of this, and we'll get there as we go further in Daniel, right, is that God orchestrated all of this. The capture of, of his people, I mean, judging, yeah, what happened 200 years before, no question, but even orchestrated that, put bad kings over Judah so that they could do the evil, all of that, so that he could give us what he gives us in the, in the prophecies of Daniel, so that we'd have a clear picture, muddy picture, of what's coming in the future. I mean, God, I mean, otherwise we wouldn't have any of this. If Daniel hadn't been raised to prominence, hadn't been given the access that he had to ancient documents and to scrolls and to the scriptures that had been written, hadn't lived when Jeremiah was preaching doom and gloom, then we wouldn't have what we will get to in the last half of this book. It wouldn't exist. And if it didn't exist, then Christ couldn't have called on it in Matthew 24 when he was given his prediction about the end of the world, and it'd be even more obscure. So God orchestrating all of this, exposing himself to the known world through these evil kings, that's one thing, but also orchestrating all of that so that the scripture could be written so that we might be able to refer to them put it together with what Christ said and be able to see an end picture much clearer than we would have been able to do. It's just it's startling about how he just works things according to his plan. And he will continue to, and he is. Go ahead. Well, this is kind of 
different kind of comment, but it okay. reminded me that even today, when something bad is going to happen or if you're going to lose your power, the writing's on the wall. Right. And so that probably still refers back to the writing on the wall. Yeah. Yeah, that's where, that's where the saying comes from, right? Although you can't read it. <laughs> and you have no you idea what it means. And you have no idea what it means, right? <laughs> but it's on the wall. Anything else? Any comment? Question? Thanks for your time.